0: You're listening to CGSW on 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 Territory. Today on Historical Figures, Icons, and Others, we'll be looking at Harriet Tubman. St. Catharines, Ontario is the largest municipality in the Niagara region. Known as the Garden City, St. Catharines boasts impressive greenery, and tourists today can enjoy the hiking trails and watch the ships set sail from the marina. The ground on which they roamed was a center for abolitionist activity and a final destination for the Underground Railroad in the 19th century. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, the Underground Railroad was a secret network of individuals who helped black Americans escape from slavery in the American South through a system of escape routes to reach freedom in the northern United States and Canada. During this time, between 30,000 and 40,000 slaves use the Underground Railroad to reach Canada, or British North America, as it was then known. On 92 Geneva Street sits a surviving relic from the era, Salem Chapel, British Methodist Episcopal Church. Historic Place's notes the modest size of the church, with its simple architecture, comprised of stucco work on its exterior, and featuring pointed arch windows. Built circa 1855, The current building replaced a log church that was unable to accommodate St. Catherine's growing black community populated by Underground Railroad refugees. The most famous member of the congregation was abolitionist and Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman. Outside the church today stands a bust of her, with a plaque reciting her famous quote, "...I wouldn't trust Uncle Sam with my people no longer. I brought them all clear off to Canada." Nicknamed Moses, her iconic status as a courageous freedom seeker who helped others escape American slavery continues to inspire many around the world. However, Tubman's American roots often relegates her to the cultural memory of the United States. In their book, Harriet's Legacies, Race, Historical Memory, and Futures in Canada, Ronald Cummings and Natalie Capel note that only a few sites in Canada commemorate Tubman. Even the 2019 feature film, Harriet, the first to depict Tubman's story, gives St. Catharines very brief screen time. An article from the St. Catharines Standard even expressed disappointment over the misspelling of the town's name in the film. Fortunately, steps have been taken to preserve her Canadian legacy in the years following her death, and her memory has returned to the forefront in recent decades. Cummings and Capel recount one instance on June 14th, 2020, during the Black Lives Matter protests in Canada and the US, when BIPOC high school students led a march from Tubman's statue at Salem Chapel to City Hall in St. Catharines. On historical figures, icons, and others, we'll dive into the life of Harriet Tubman and Canada's role in her story, a sometimes overlooked aspect of a well-known woman's legacy of courage and the pursuit of liberty. Harriet Tubman's story begins near Bucktown in Dorchester County, Maryland. She was born Araminta Ross, being nicknamed Minty throughout her young years. Like most black slaves, her birth date is unknown, although many accounts estimate hers to be somewhere near 1820. Details of Tubman's relationship with her parents during childhood is also shadowy. In her biography Harriet Tubman, The Life and the Life Stories, Jean mcmahon Humes mentions that Tubman apparently cared for her younger brother and a baby, a common occurrence for girls within slave families. Since her two older sisters were sold down south, fear of further family separation plagued Tubman throughout her slave years, sparking her fierce protection for her remaining family members and initial desire for freedom. Although young Tubman was subjected to the horrors of slavery, her smarts and resourcefulness was displayed early on, Catherine Clinton recounts this in her critically-acclaimed biography, Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. One of Tubman's mistresses whipped her every day in the morning. In her company, Tubman would wear thick clothing to lessen the whip's impact and feign the extreme pain. According to the Canadian Encyclopedia, she frequently worked the fields, allowing her to learn geographical directions and use therapeutic curbs from family and fellow slaves. These survival skills would serve her well during her historic escape years later. When working as a field hand in her adolescent years, Tubman suffered a severe head injury when an overseer attempted to throw a lead weight at a fellow slave who had left his post. Tubman reportedly stood between the overseer and the escapee, and she was struck instead. She later stated the weight had broke her skull and left her in grave condition, according to Clinton. Against all odds, Tubman survived, but the trauma had long-term repercussions. Not only would she have incidents of slipping into a slumber while working or conversing, but she would also experience visions, many of them holding spiritual significance that reflected her deep Christian faith. Kristen T. Ordle notes the significance of this in the 2015 article, Harriet Tubman, Slavery, the Civil War, and civil rights in the 19th century. Ordle writes that it's anyone's guess whether Tubman's head entry truly opened a direct communication with the spiritual world. Nevertheless, when later asked how she developed the courage to face the dangerous Underground Railroad journeys, Tubman claimed that it was not her, but the work of the Lord. She put his full trust in him to lead her on the journey and claimed to have received guidance through these visions. In 1844, she married a man named John Tubman, a free black man whose background remains mysterious. Clinton writes that while intermarriage between slave and free black Americans was not uncommon in Maryland, it created hardships in their marriage. Firstly, as an enslaved woman married to a free man, any children they produced would be born slaves. Secondly, Harriet's burning desire for freedom pulled the couple apart. John's status as a free man likely made him less inclined to uproot his life in Maryland and travel with her north. Yet, a turn of events only heightened Harriet's desire for freedom. Following the death of her owner, Edward Brodus, Tubman was at risk of being sold to owners down south, Subjecting her to the backbreaking work of cotton picking. In her book, Harriet Tubman, Freedom Seeker, Freedom Leader, Rosemary Sadlier points out that Tubman's sleeping episodes would surely have hindered her from meeting the worker quota that Southern slaveholders expected. Clinton quotes Tubman, who later in life declared that, There is one of two things I had a right to liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. In 1849, Tubman made her daring escape to the free state of Philadelphia. According to Humes, it was initially a joint effort with two or three of her brothers, but perhaps because of the great risk, they turned back to Maryland. Ultimately, Tubman, a slave woman of small stature, made the dangerous journey on her own. The exact route she took can only be left to the imagination. Ordo believes that Tubman likely departed from the Poplar Neck Plantation, located on the Choptank River. Tubman used the North Star as a guide to freedom and traveled by night. Humes notes it is possible she traveled through several towns throughout the slave state of Delaware. Before her journey, she apparently received help from a white woman who gave her directions to the first safe house and gave her the names of others who could be trusted for the second safe house. Mortal further infers that Tubman's first destination was likely the Leverton family house, a prominent Quaker family within the Underground Railroad. The son of the household hid Tubman in a wagon to transport her to the second safe house. Tubman finally arrived to Philadelphia, where she intermingled with a large community of free black Americans and freedom seekers. Clinton writes that she adopted the name Harriet when she attained freedom, Stating that she escaped the hell of slavery to the heaven of Liberty When she achieved her dream of freedom, she was reborn as Harriet However, according to her book bound for the promised land Harriet Tubman portrait of an American hero Kate Clifford Larson states Tubman took her first name shortly after marrying John possibly in honor of her mother she worked as a domestic and a cook for hotels and homes throughout Philadelphia and Cape May, New Jersey. She saved her funds to be used towards her later rescue missions, hoping to free her family. Clinton mentions that despite being technically freeing Philadelphia, ex-slaves like Tubman were not entirely safe. According to Larson, slave owners would turn to professional slave catchers and bounty hunters to retrieve their human property being offered substantial financial awards. Unfortunately, further developments would further endanger runaway slaves in the North like Tubman. The bitter conflict over the legal existence of slavery continued to rage between the free states of the North and the slave states of the South. Attempting to curb these tensions that eventually led to the American Civil War, a series of political compromises were made. One notable instance was the 1850 Fugitive State Law passed by Congress. According to Sadlier, the law enforced Southerners' property rights by declaring runaway slaves to be subjected to capture by Northern citizens and sent back to their slave owner. In other words, anyone who helped slaves escape or prevented slave owners from retrieving their human property could be fined and imprisoned. As Larson explains, the passage of this law was rooted in slave owners' frustrations in the increasing number of runaway slaves. This development placed fugitive slaves like Tubman at greater risk. As a result, she pushed her operations further north, into Canada. Canada had its own complicated relationship with slavery starting in the early colonial days. Sadlier writes that slaves were brought to the region as early as 1628. Unlike America, using black Canadians for large plantations was uncommon in Canada, so slaves were generally used for personal and domestic purposes for high-class city residents. As Clinton explains, many loyalists who escaped to Canada following the American Revolution brought their slaves with them in 1783. The Government of Canada website provides further insight into slavery with the Parks Canada article. Up until 1834, more than 4,000 people of African descent were enslaved in the colonies that would later become Quebec, Ontario, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. Like in the United States, these slaves were stripped of their humanity and were subjected to violence from their owners. Many of them would revolt against bondage through means like destroying tools to hinder productivity or attempted to escape to free black communities. African enslavement in Lower Canada lost its hold in the late 1790s since many slaves challenged the legitimacy of their enslavement in courts of law. In 1793, the legislature of Upper Canada, now Ontario, prohibited the importation of enslaved people But since this law still did not free anyone, many slaves fled to the free northern United States. Slowly, slavery lost its hold within the region as a whole. In August 1834, the institution was abolished across the British Empire, Canada included. This naturally made Canada a safe haven for Tubman and her fellow runaways. The exact numbers are hard to say, although as many as 60,000 ex-slaves are believed to have lived in Canada during the 1850s, according to Clinton. Many black communities were isolated and standalone outposts running along the U.S. border. Such communities were usually far from rich, but very welcoming to runaway slaves. St. Catharines, the town that became Tubman's home base, provided a reasonable number of job opportunities for these fugitive slaves. Sadlier writes that the men worked as laborers at the Well and Canal, which provided power for mills and manufacturing. Other black residents worked as tradespeople or even as servants in wealthier white homes. Clinton states that why Tubman herself preferred St. Catharines is debatable, but it seems that it served practical purposes for Tubman. It was close enough to the American border but also far enough away to avoid the attention of bounty hunters. According to Sadlier, Tubman rented a boarding house on North Street near the corner of Geneva for fellow refugees. The house was relatively close to Salem Chapel. Sadlier notes that when Tubman was not on rescue missions, she likely worked as a housekeeper, cook, or laundress, positions often associated with black women at the time. Economic interdependence was prominent within the community. Tubman used her wages to support the ex-slaves who resided with her. If she was short on money, she may have turned to others for assistance. Some of these sources include the American Missionary Society and the Anti-Slavery Society of Canada. William Wells Brown, an ex-fugitive slave writer, reflected how many black residents who had been in the community for long enough owned their own property. According to Humez, Brown wrote that each family has a good garden, well filled with vegetables, ducks, chickens, and a pig pen with at least one fat grunter getting ready for Christmas. The houses in the settlement are all owned by their occupants, and from inquiry, I learned that the people generally were free from debt. Indeed, St. Catherine's provided opportunities for economic self-sufficiency for these men and women. Despite this rosy picture, living in St. Catharines was not without its hardships. St. Catharines, and the rest of Canada for that matter, was not immune to racial prejudice. A black fugitive enjoyed greater political and legal freedoms within Canada and coexisted with white residents to be sure. Along with being able to own property, Larson writes that black residents could vote, hold political office, testify in court, and partake in a jury. However, incidents rooted in racism did occur. Clinton describes one black homebuilder's house in an all-white neighborhood being regularly torn down each night, only to have him rebuild it the next day. Sadlier points to another instance where black residents were barred from enjoying the bathhouse and the mineral spring waters of the Welland House. The sad irony is that many of them were involved in its construction. In addition, Clinton notes how the bitter winter weather during Tubman's first year in Canada West did not help. Many exiles were not well-dressed for cold weather and earned their keep through chopping wood and working various jobs within St. Catharines. Sadly, many died of respiratory illnesses from the weather. Larson points out the work opportunities varied greatly based on weather. For example, former plantation workers who were interested in agriculture were forced to adjust to the shorter growing seasons. However, Clinton notes that those who survived claimed that the freedom from slavery made the northern winters more bearable. Tubman made it her mission to retrieve family members and others so she could share this freedom with them. In a separate excerpt published in Meridians, Larson provides a timeline of Tubman's underground railroad missions following her escape from Dorchester County. Tubman successfully rescued many of her family members from American bondage over the next several years. She conducted her first rescue mission the same year the Fugitive Slave Law was passed in 1850, rescuing her niece, Kesaya and her niece's two children. Between 1851 to 52, she rescued several others from the Eastern Shore, including her brother Moses. During this time, she returned to her husband, John, to bring him to Philadelphia, only to discover he married another free woman and refused to leave. This devastated Tubman. On Christmas Day in 1854, she brought her three brothers to freedom in Philadelphia, then to St. Catharines. By this time, Tubman had become well-known among underground railroad operators and the abolitionist community. William Lloyd Garrison famously named her Moses, a nickname that would remain with Tubman throughout her life. Like how Moses in the Old Testament of the Bible led the Israelites to the Promised Land, Tubman led her people to the Promised Land of the North. While she was unsuccessful in retrieving her sister Rachel and Rachel's children, she did manage to rescue her parents from Maryland in 1857. According to Clinton, both her parents were technically free since her father was emancipated by his master's will in 1840. He later bought his wife's freedom in 1855 for $20. By the time Tubman had arrived to help them in 1857, Many of their children and grandchildren were enjoying freedom in Canada. This loneliness gradually weighed on her parents. Not only was her father at risk of being arrested for helping slaves escape, but the Dred Scott decision, which was declared by the U.S. Supreme Court the same year, denied black American citizenship. In total, Tubman is believed to have saved about 70 individuals in a matter of approximately 13 missions. She also gave instructions to many others how to escape on their own. Tubman famously met John Brown in St. Catharines, prior to his infamous ill-fated raid on Harper's Ferry. Like Tubman, Brown was a staunch abolitionist, though he was more willing to use violence to push the anti-slavery cause. As Humes explains... One notable instance was his participation in the guerrilla warfare that defined Bleeding Kansas in 1855-56, where anti-slavery and pro-slavery forces fought over the existence of slavery in Kansas. Brown had arrived to St. Catharines to recruit refugees to join his crusade and seek the aid of Tubman. The two met in St. Catharines in 1858, and all accounts show that Tubman supported Brown, a month later, Brown held a convention in Chatham, Ontario, an event which Robin W. Winks describes in his book Blacks in Canada A History as the most famous meeting of abolitionists on Canadian soil. As Humes notes, Brown envisioned an uprising within Virginia, Alabama, and Tennessee, intending to liberate the claimed territory from slavery. Unfortunately, a series of postponements and delays caused Brown's envisioned raid to lose momentum any support he and Tubman managed to build between their meetings and the convention seemed to diminish before the raid went forward. Ultimately, only one black Canadian participated in the raid. Clinton says that while no evidence exists that Tubman ever advocated using violence, she seemed fully aware of the consequences such a raid would inflict. Tubman ultimately never participated in the raid, It is believed she had intended to join, but was ultimately set back by an illness. After the raid finally proceeded and proved disastrous, Brown was found guilty of treason and executed. Despite this, many American Northerners and anti-slavery advocates, like Tubman, viewed his actions and sacrifice as heroic. After a while, the Canadian winters proved too harsh for Tubman's parents. Fortunately, New York Senator William Seward offered Tubman affordable property in Auburn, where a small community of freedom seekers from Dorchester County resided. Tubman moved to this property in 1859 to look after her parents and family. According to Larson's book, she would use her Auburn home as a boarding house to help her through periods of financial struggles. Clinton writes that returning to the United States was apparently a trend among black refugees living in Canada, as scholars estimate that the population had dwindled to 20,000 by 1861. However, according to Dan J. Broyled in his article, Harriet Tubman, Transnationalism and the Land of a Queen in the Late Antebellum, Tubman did return to St. Catharines for a time, to avoid being investigated for her involvement with John Brown's raid, she also established the Fugitive Aid Society of St. Catharines, which provided support for low status escapees in the early 1860s. Sandra Edmonds' crew outlines Tubman's activities during the Civil War and beyond in her article, Harriet Tubman, Peacemaker and Stateswoman. Tubman played a significant role in the Civil War with the Union Army recognizing that her skills as an underground railroad conductor would serve them well. She worked as a nurse and a spy for the Union forces. She famously led the Union Army in a successful 1863 raid that overcame rebel forces and freed around 750 slaves. She also worked as a resettlement agent in which she helped ex-slave women from refugee camps ease into their new life where they could earn wages. Unfortunately, the transition into the Reconstruction era after the Civil War was far from smooth for many freed black Americans. Despite her remarkable achievements, Tubman was still confronted with lingering post-Civil War racist sentiments. An infamous incident occurred when she was physically forced off a train by a white conductor on her way back to Auburn, despite the fact she carried a military government pass. As crew recounts, she was also denied military compensation because of gender issues and the supposed informality of her service. Tubman would deal with accumulating debt and periods of financial hardships throughout her later years. Despite these setbacks, Tubman remained undeterred in continuing her community service. Larson discusses Tubman's advocacy work for women's suffrage. She argued that it was only fair that women earn voting rights because they sacrificed so much for men and tended for injured soldiers in the army hospitals. It was at an 1896 suffrage convention in Rochester, New York that she famously declared, "'I was conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years,' and I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. According to Larson, Tubman's health would decline in the later years of her life, at one point being wheelchair-bound. She was admitted into her own Harriet Tubman home for aged and infirm Negroes, which had officially opened in 1908. Before she slipped into a coma, she apparently told those who gathered by her side that, I go away to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you also may be. Harriet Tubman passed away on March 10th, 1913. Clinton writes that in America today, there are thousands of black Americans with at least one ancestor who found freedom thanks to Harriet Tubman. In 1990, March 10th was declared Harriet Tubman Day in the United States and in St. Catharines. In 1972, the Harriet Tubman Community Organization was launched in North York, Ontario. According to the organization's website, Their mission is, in their words, building meaningful and developmental relationships with young people experiencing racialization between the ages of eight to 25 years old. Using Harriet Tubman's collaborative model, we partner with diverse institutions, organizations, community groups, and individual allies to establish a railroad network of resource to keep black young people and others who relate engaged in positive activities. Despite lacking political power, Tubman recognized that individual and collective action by people like herself could produce positive change for people of color. She resisted the institution of slavery by breaking free from its reins, bringing dozens of others along with her to freedom. The fact that she was a slave woman of small stature Made her vulnerable to serious consequences and yet that is exactly what makes her accomplishments all the more admirable and to think that she used the small Canadian town of St. Catharines as her home base Harriet Tubman's legacy is one that can and should be shared across the US Canada border since our pre Confederation nation played a small and indirect but important part in slavery's eventual demise in America As Canadians, we certainly cannot overlook our own racial prejudices that mirrored that of our American neighbors, sometimes merely tolerating, rather than truly accepting others. Yet we can also acknowledge that freedom in Canada gave ex-slaves the chance to be economically self-sufficient and earn wages, form communities to enjoy the company of family and friends, and most importantly, give them a taste of freedom. And Harriet Tubman made much of this work. While we should recognize there is always work to be done addressing racial inequality and prejudices in Canada and elsewhere, it's people like Harriet Tubman who we can look to and recognize there is always hope for positive change. Thanks for tuning into Historical Figures Icons and Others. Stay tuned for future episodes.